Essen has the much-needed break today. He's at home celebrating the graduation of his daughter, Sarah, who just graduated from UVA. just want to take a moment um, to, to let all the graduates know we are going to spend some time next Sunday recognizing you in our service. We are so very proud of you and thankful for you. I know this has not been how, things, how you expected things to go this year with the coronavirus, but the Lord is with you, and, and I, we do hope that uh, you'll still be blessed, um, but we're going to recognize them uh, next week. Uh, it is my pleasure to be with you this morning as we continue our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and one thing uh, maybe you've seen um, as we've been working through the series is that Jesus has a way of uniting people. Uh, he even brings people together that have very strong opposing uh, views on things, uh, and frankly, people that don't even like each other, that he has a way of uniting them. Uh, we see, see that happening all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is bringing different people together. Some are coming together um, because they are following him, but others are coming together because they actually oppose Jesus. But those that oppose Jesus are, are being united because they have one thing in common, and that is this, that Jesus must be destroyed and his followers need to be stopped. They are united in, in their passion to put an end to Jesus and his ministry. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He is preparing to head to the cross and during these days leading up to his arrest and death on the cross, uh, he continues to be approached by different people who are trying to question his authority or who are trying to trap him. It began with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They challenged Jesus' authority. But Jesus prevailed. Then came the Pharisees and the Herodians. They tried to trap Jesus by asking him a question that had no good or right answer. And Jesus prevailed. And now it is time for another group to come and challenge Jesus. This time it's the Sadducees. They came to Jesus with really this absurd hypothetical question that would prove that Jesus' belief system is wrong, particularly what he believes about the resurrection, that that is wrong. Will Jesus prevail again? Well, let us read together from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. This is the word of the Lord given to us in love. And Sadducees came to him who say, there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? But when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this incredible message of hope as we are reminded that the resurrection is true. 
And we'll see that in just a few short days when Jesus himself is raised from the dead. But Lord, we know that not everyone believes this, that there are skeptics, that there are those that question. There may even be those here this morning that don't believe in the resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts and minds, that you would teach them this amazing truth and the hope that they have solely because the resurrection is true, that there is life after death, and that we look forward to spending eternity with Jesus. Lord, we pray as we work through this passage together that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful truth about the love of Christ and his sacrifice for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So the Sadducees, they're they're another sect within Judaism. Uh, They were wealthy and powerful. Uh, They had significant influence and control over the temple and the priesthood. They were also greatly despised by the Pharisees. Now, some of this was due to jealousy over their influence and power. Some of this was due to the fact that uh, the Sadducees were sympathetic towards Rome. And some of this was due because of uh, different theological convictions. The Sadducees differed from the Pharisees and and from Orthodox Judaism in a number of ways. First, they, they emphasized the free will of man over the sovereignty of God. Second, they did not believe in angels or demons. Third, they believed that the the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that those were the only inspired true words of God. The rest of the Old Testament uh, was not inspired and, and did not carry any kind of authority. And finally, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. And we see that specifically mentioned here in our passage in verse 18. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. And this probably actually was the most, the biggest sticking point between them and the Pharisees. This also sets the scene for their encounter with Jesus. They approach Jesus with a question. But before they ask him a question, they they set the scene. They tell him, there's a woman, and, and she marries a man who has seven brothers. But he dies without giving her any children. So her his brother marries her, and he also dies. And this keeps going on and on until every brother has married her and none of them have left her with any offspring before they all died and eventually she dies. And so here's the question. Since she has been married so many times, whose wife will she be in the life to come after the resurrection? Who will be her husband? It is a bit bit of a far-fetched situation, but we need to acknowledge that it is possible This scenario is something that could potentially happen. So why do the Sadducees believe that this question will be a problem for Jesus? Well, first off, they've probably used this question many times on the Pharisees, and it's never failed to confound the Pharisees. In a sense, this is like their silver bullet question, that whenever they ask this, they win the argument. Whenever they ask this, they prove that the resurrection is a farce in their mind. And no one... No one has ever, have, has ever been able to prove them wrong. Well, in steps Jesus. You know, last week, Essen reminded us that Jesus can't be baited, that he can't be trapped. And he's already proven this many times. But now the Sadducees want their turn. And they come with a question that has never failed. So, so why, why is this question, why is it so difficult for people to answer? Why do they feel like this is going to be the question that's going to finally confound Jesus and prove that he is a fake? 
Well, first, the question is based on Scripture. The Sadducees use what is known as the, the Leverite Law, which is found in Deuteronomy 25, as the basis or as the foundation of their question. The Leverite Law stated that if a man died without uh, producing any children, then his closest next of kin would be responsible for taking the widow as his wife in order to produce an offspring for the man that had died. And the reason for this, or the purpose for this, was to be able to provide a descendant for the deceased that would carry on the family name and it would also protect his property and inheritance. There's a great picture of this found in the, in the book of Ruth. Boaz is, is Ruth's kinsman redeemer, and he redeems the family line, the family name, and the family inheritance. So in the Sadducees' example, each brother would take the widow as wife because they were obligated to do so because of Deuteronomy 25. And since none of them produced an offspring, this continued to happen down the line of brothers until eventually this woman died. So the setting for the Sadducees' question, it is biblically warranted. It is a biblically possible scenario. However, there are two other things that you need to believe in order for this question to, to make any sense, in order for this question to have any kind of impact, in order for this question to actually trap you. And that is, first, you need to believe in the resurrection. And second, you need to believe that marriage continues in the resurrection, that marriage continues in the life to come. The Sadducees didn't believe in either one of those, but they knew that many people did, including the Pharisees and including Jesus. You see, most religious leaders at that time believed that the, the life to come was just an extension of this world, but just more glorious. They believed that heaven would be a better version of this world. And this is where the Sadducees have you, because they, they, most people believe that this new world, this new life to come, heaven, um, would include things like marriage and other aspects of life just better. And so the Sadducees have you, because if you believe in the Leverite law, and if you believe in the resurrection, and if you believe that marriage continues in the life to come, then you're stuck with a logical impossibility. In essence, the Sadducees are saying that if you believe that God gave us the Leverite law and God gives us the resurrection, look at the possible problem it creates. And therefore, both can't be true. Belief in the resurrection becomes an unsolvable problem. When I was a kid, I used to love getting in silly debates with my friends. And the essence of those debates, I and mean, we've all heard this, you know, the, 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 the question of who would win between the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Now, our, our debates wouldn't use those terms, but it would be like, you know, imagine I was on a train that nothing could stop the train. And I was going down the tracks, you know, and all of a sudden a big rock fell on the train, and that rock was indestructible. Who would win? And then your friend would be like, well, well, what if the train's going downhill? I mean, it has more speed that way. And then you'd counter with, well, yeah, and imagine if the train was being driven by Superman. Well, what if the rock was being held up by the Incredible Hulk? You know, this is the way kids argue. This is the way I used to argue all the time. It would just get sillier and sillier and sillier. And the point is that there was never really a, a good answer. There was never a right answer. In essence, that's what the Sadducees have done. They've come up with this absurd but possible scenario that proves there is no life after death. Because if you would think through the implications of the Leverite law, then you would realize that the resurrection makes no sense. Because it would put God in a place where he has to contradict himself. It is the unstoppable force versus the immovable 
object. You can't have both the Levite law and the resurrection. So the Sadducees, at least they think, they have Jesus cornered. Like I said, this has never failed them. This has worked on the Pharisees many times. He's either Jesus is going to either have to say that he does not believe in God's law, or he's going to have to admit that the resurrection is not actually true. So how does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? It's always interesting to see how Jesus responds to, to different people that come to him with questions, and even those people that come to him that are trying to trap him or are opposed to him. In this case, he speaks plainly to the Sadducees. The structure of his argument is clear. He says that the Sadducees are wrong. He then gives them a reason for why they are wrong in verse 24. He corrects their wrong view in, in verse 25. He defends his position in verse 26 uh, with Scripture. And then he applies that Scripture to their current debate in verse 27. And then finally he concludes his, his argument by once again speaking very plainly and telling them, you are quite wrong. So J Jesus basically starts by saying, you are wrong and let me show you why. And then he gives them two reasons. You do not know the Scriptures and you do not know the power of God. Now, this is a particularly harsh rebuke for the Sadducees, considering what their role is within Judaism. You know, they, they have heavy influence over the priesthood, and, and it was the, the priests that were responsible. They were the ones that were given the authority to interpret the Word of God. They were the ones uh, that were given the authority to act as mediators between God and His people. If anyone should understand the Word of God, if anyone should understand and experience the power of God, it would be the priest, it would be the Sadducees. And yet here's Jesus telling them that they are ignorant of God's word and that they have underestimated God's power. And because of that, they are greatly deceived. And you know what? This, this can happen to us too. If we don't know God's word, if we underestimate God's power, then we too can be deceived. God's word is true. We cannot overestimate the power of God. And yet the Sadducees have done both of these things. They don't know his word. They don't know his power. You see, although the resurrection is not explicitly taught in the Old Testament, there are many allusions to it. And not only that, there have actually already been some resurrections before Jesus' resurrection. God displayed his power to resurrect people through both Elijah and Elijah. You can find this in 1 Kings 17 and in 2 Kings 4. And then there's the stories of Enoch and Elijah. Both of these men were taken up to heaven by God and did not have to face death. So there's evidence of resurrection. There's evidence of the life to come in the Old Testament. And some of this evidence can even be found in the book of Moses, those first five books of the Old Testament that the Sadducees actually believed and revered. However, their minds, their minds have been closed. Their hearts are hardened to the things of God. They are wrong because they do not know God, they do not know His Word, and they do not know His power. Well, Jesus goes on to correct one of their wrong views, which, which by the way, this is actually a wrong view not only held by the Sadducees, but it's held by the Pharisees and all the religious leaders of, of that day. Look at verse 25. 
It says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Well, notice first what Jesus does not say. He does not say, if they rise from the dead. No, Jesus says, when they rise from the dead. He is stating here emphatically that they will rise from the dead. He is stating here emphatically that the resurrection will happen. The hope of our resurrection is not a false hope. It will happen. The Sadducees are wrong. Jesus then moves on to destroy this this false assumption that they have. And what is that assumption? That marriage will exist in heaven. That marriage will continue on in the life to come. Jesus says plainly, there will not be marriage in the life to come. And to make his points more clear, he says that we will actually become like the angels. Now what does that mean? Well, the angels, they are glorious, sinless beings, and they do not have to face death. And therefore, they have no need of marriage. And we will be like them. We will be glorious, sinless beings that are not subject to death. And therefore, there will be no need for marriage in heaven. Now, let me stop here for a moment. Now, I realize that for some of you, this is bad news. I realize for some of you, this is hard to hear. Because you love your spouse. You love your spouse greatly, and the thought that marriage, your marriage will not continue in heaven is painful. It's hard to hear. But let me try to encourage you. Marriage is a gift from the Lord. It is a good gift, and it serves a glorious purpose. But marriage was never intended to be an eternal gift. Our marriages are supposed to point to a much greater, more important marriage, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a marriage in heaven, but it will be the marriage between Jesus and his bride, which is the church. And once that happens, once Jesus receives his bride in full, then the purpose of our earthly marriages will be no longer necessary. So if you're struggling with the thought that your marriage will not continue in heaven, that is a good thing. That means God has blessed you with a healthy and good marriage. That means that you have a strong love for your spouse. And and my hope is that all of us would feel that way. All of us would be hurt by this news. But let me assure all of us that once we get to heaven, the glory and the joy that we will experience in the presence of our true husband, Jesus Christ, will take all of that pain away. Listen to these words by R.C. Sproul. He writes, We do not understand the depth of joy and delight that God has prepared for his people in heaven. If you use your imagination and try to think of the greatest possible experience that you will have in heaven, then multiply that joy you will feel in that moment by a million times. You still will not have begun to appreciate what God is preparing for his people in heaven. Our existences there will be filled with joy far, far exceeding that which the marriage relationship provides in this fallen world. Marriage is good. It is intended to point us to Jesus, which is why it is also temporary. Because once we are with Jesus, marriage is no longer needed. 
Now, for those of you that know our family, you know that our family loves going to the beach. Matter of fact, this is, as Jenny will say, this is her sanctuary. This is where she goes to, to get away and to, to be with the Lord and to be refreshed. It's, it's, just a, it's a very special, important part of our lives, going to the beach. And, and because of that, we actually have in our house several paintings and, and things related to the beach to help remind us of the beach. And those things, those paintings, those pictures, those things that we have that remind us of the beach, they do provide us with a level of joy and of happiness and of peace. But they don't compare with actually going to the beach. As a matter of fact, this may surprise you, but when we do go to the beach, we try to go there once or twice every year, we don't take those pictures with us. Why? Because we don't need them anymore. We're experiencing the real thing. We're experiencing the full thing. And that is what is happening here. Once we are in heaven, we will not need our marriages anymore because we will be with Jesus. We will have Jesus. So we see here in this passage that Jesus corrects this wrong teaching of his day. Marriage will not exist in heaven. And this one correction alone causes the Sadducees' entire argument to fall apart. You see, if marriage does not continue into heaven, then their whole question about whose wife will she be in heaven is no longer a valid question. So Jesus tells the Sadducees they are wrong because they do not know God, because they have underestimated his power, and he corrects their wrong view of marriage, and this is the view that their entire argument hangs upon. But Jesus is not done. He moves on to defend his view of the resurrection by looking at what God's word says about this. We see this in verse 26. It says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Once again, Jesus assumes that the dead will be raised. And then he then uses a passage from Exodus 3 to prove that that's true. Now this might seem like an odd passage for Jesus to go to to prove the resurrection. So, so what, is, what is he doing? Why does he go to Exodus 3? Well, first, he's using a passage from that very part of Scripture that the Sadducees actually believed to be true and actually believed to have authority over them. And to emphasize this, he actually refers to it. This is why he calls it the Book of Moses. This is referring, once again, to those first five books of the Old Testament. And then Jesus not only does that, but then he takes one of the most important and most revered passages out of those first five books, which is the passage about Moses and the burning bush. This is where God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and he charges Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And during this exchange with Moses, God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is a reminder that God is a covenant God. And that he has promised to keep his covenant on behalf of his people for all generations. So how does this passage actually prove that the resurrection is true? Well, look at what God says in Exodus 3. He says that I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. When God is talking to Moses, he is saying that he still currently is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And where are they? They are in the ground and their bodies are rotting away. They are dead. But God is speaking as if he is still actively their God. He is speaking as if he is still in fellowship with them and he is still actively 
keeping his covenant promises that he made to them. So how can, how can God say that? They're dead after all. How can God still be their God, still be keeping promises he made to them, still acting as if he's in some kind of relationship with them? It's because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live. They are in the presence of God right now. And if that were not true, then God's promises to them would no longer matter. But God is eternal. He is unchangeable. His covenant promises and blessings do not stop, even when a person dies. Think about that for a second. God's promises to you as his people cannot be stopped, even by death. God's people will live, after, live on after death. That's why Jesus goes on to say that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then God is your God now, and he will be your God for all eternity. You belong to him forever. And his good and faithful promises to you will never end. You see, death, death will not have the final word. And so Jesus concludes his argument with the Sadducees by telling them plainly, you are quite wrong. Let us pray that we never hear those words from Jesus ourselves. Let us pray that we strive to know his word, to understand and to experience his power and to continue to trust in him so that we can know him and know how he's at work in our lives and our world. But I want to stop here for a second and just think about this exchange and what this meant for Jesus. You see, in just a few days, he is going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, and he's going to be killed on a cross. The Sadducees and the other religious leaders will have their victory. This is what they've been trying to get. This is what they've been longing for, that Jesus will be taken away, that he will be destroyed. And as I said at the beginning, Jesus has united these enemies because they do have that common goal to, is to get rid of Jesus. And that is going to happen in just a very few short days. But is that, is that the end of the story? Have the Sadducees lost this battle but actually won the war? No, because we know that Jesus will rise from that grave three days after his death. He will be victorious. He will have the last word. And here's the irony of this whole episode. The Sadducees who, who do not believe in the resurrection, they come to the one, the very one who has power over death. They come to the very one who is the resurrection and they challenge him by saying the resurrection is not true. They don't see Jesus for who he is. They don't know who he is. They don't know him. He is the only one that could give them hope that lasts eternally. And they reject him and they try to kill him. Which is impossible anyway because he's life over death. But let's ask this question. What if the Sadducees are actually right? What if there is no resurrection? Well, listen to what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. But God is not the God of the dead. He is God of the living. Jesus will be victorious over death. The resurrection assures us that we too will be resurrected. Jesus lives. We too will live. Jesus has the final word. And therefore we have great hope. So if you're here this morning, you need to hear that your sin, your sin does not have the last word. Whatever guilt and shame you might be wrestling with right now because of your sin, it will not last. Jesus defeated sin. He has forgiven you. And he has declared that you are holy and righteous. Satan does not have the last word. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. The promise of Genesis 3 has been fulfilled. Jesus has crushed the head of Satan. Now, it is true that Satan is still active in some ways, even now. But he has no power over you. And his days are numbered. His end is guaranteed. Jesus' victory will be complete. And not even death itself will have the last word. All of us are going to die. It may be many, many years from now. It, it could be tomorrow. We don't know. But what we do know is that death is not the end for those who trust in Jesus. Rather, it is, death is only the beginning. It is the beginning of an eternity of unimaginable joy and peace in the presence of Jesus. Listen to what else Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting, of de- the, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be victorious over sin, Satan, and death, because Jesus was victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Jesus will have the final word. Now let us think for just a moment, what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for us today? You see, there are some of us that are here this morning that have great fear. There are many of us that are confused and that have lots of anxiety over this whole coronavirus pandemic. But here's one thing that I can say with absolute certainty. The coronavirus will not have the last word. Yes, it, it may kill you. It may kill someone that you love. It may destroy much of our society as we know it. Prayerfully, none of those things will happen, but it may. But that is not where the story will end. Because you are in the hand of the king, the sovereign king, and you are in the hands of the good shepherd. Jesus will have the final word. The one who has all authority and power and honor will have the last word. The one who loves you and knows you and cares for you even more than you know. He will have the last word. He will have the final word over you. He will have the final word over all things. So listen to these words from Paul David Tripp. Remember today that no matter how hard your story is right here, right now, it is guaranteed for you as God's child 
that it will end better than anything you can now imagine. And that glory will never end. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for the good news that, yes, Jesus did die, but he rose from the grave, that he was victorious over sin, over Satan, over death. And because of that, we have great hope. We have the hope of knowing that if we belong to Jesus, that we too will live. That we have an eternity within his presence ahead of us. Lord, I pray that that would give us great joy and great peace. Lord, I pray particularly as we are in this strange time in our, in our world, as we are experiencing this pandemic together, and there are lots of questions, there's lots of uncertainties, there's lots of fears and anxieties, there's lots of different opinions. Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us remember the one thing that matters the most, and that is that the coronavirus will not have the last word that Jesus is sovereign over even it, that he is victorious over this virus, and that he will have the final word. May that encourage us. May that strengthen us. Lord, I do pray particularly for those that are struggling with this, whether it be due to loss of jobs or income, whether it be due to strained relationships, whether it be due to actual health issues. Lord, I pray that you would draw near to each one of them, that you provide for them, strengthen them, encourage them, heal them. Lord, we do want to continue to lift up your church here and abroad. We pray that you would protect your church during this time, that you would grow your church, that your church would be a light and salt in this world, that people would be so amazed at our unity and our sacrificial love for one another and for our communities, that they would be drawn to the church, and more importantly, that they'd be drawn to Jesus through us. Lord, work in us that way, that many would come to know Jesus during this time. Lord, particularly this morning, we want to lift up Jeff and Patty Borden as they continue to work with us.